Syria had been subjected to French colonization, had been subjected to U.S.-backed coup d'etat after it gained its independence from France, and these kind of puppet leaders who rule more in Western interests. And Assad established an authentic uh, Syrian government. And, I mean, he governed more in the interest of the Syrian people or established Syrian control over their resources. is Monica Perez with a returning guest today, Jeremy Kuzmarov, author of four books on U.S. foreign policy, including The Russians Are Coming Again, The First Cold War as Tragedy, The Second as Farce. As managing editor of Covert Action Magazine, Jeremy and his team are keeping us apprised of the real stories behind the biggest events of the day. And as much as I respect Jeremy and his work, our ideologies are completely different. Jeremy thinks government is legit, and I've given up on the state completely. But in a post-ideological world of corruption and collusion, people of principle can still find common ground. So I appreciate Jeremy being here. Thank you, Jeremy. How are you? Pretty good. How have you been? Fine, thank you. And I, I really always think we should talk every month, but I, uh, I've been in flux. I'm moved houses. I'm right now at my mom's. So people who are watching video wise will see that I'm in a tiny bedroom upstairs of my mother's house and it's like 99% humidity. So uh, that, that'll be a good reason for people to check this out on YouTube, but it's actually live on YouTube for people who are watching. Um, so without further ado, I there were so many articles since the last time we talked. I could literally um, pick your brain for an hour on each one, but I want to start with the most recent and there are a few others we might be able to get to. And uh, the first one, the title was Aggressive U.S. Push for Military Supremacy in the Arctic Could Trigger Nuclear War. And I feel like this is not really on people's radar. However, I always am suspicious. So when I heard the story of the Titanic submersible, I thought I wouldn't be surprised if that's used for some policy agenda. What's going on in the Arctic? So that really caught my eye anyway. And uh, so... What caught you? Why did you write this article? What triggered it? And tell us the upshot. Well, uh, the U.S. Ha has, uh, you know, uh, I think established you know, military bases in northern Norway. Uh, earlier, um, I think the Trump administration had pr tried to purchase Greenland uh, from Denmark, which is owned <laughs> by Denmark. And this is, you know, very clearly an aggressive strategy to control the Arctic. And it goes back to the Cold War. Uh, you know, and I had read a book in March, uh, I was at a conference and I picked up this book on, uh, these cold war, uh, station and, you know, that were set up in the Arctic where they brought in all these scientists and they were, uh, some of it actually led to breakthrough, you know, as far as like climate, uh, studying, you know, the climate change and, uh, various environmental, uh, issues in the Arctic. Uh, but it really was set up as a platform to project U.S. power and uh, as a, a platform for nuclear weapons, which were stored there very secretly. And this was all kept secret. Uh, and I think we're seeing a return to that, you know, today with this with nuclear arms race developing uh, and this, you know, growing Cold War rivalry between the United States and Russia. The Arctic becomes. Uh, important again is an arena of geopolitical rivalry. You know, China 
has a polarized strategy and they're moving in there and Russia, you know, I mean, Russia, uh, some of the, you know, Northern Russia borders on the Arctic circle and Russia, you know, wants to claim uh, influence in the Arctic. Uh, but the U S is yet yeah, promoting a very aggressive strategy. So I, I think people should, you know, cast attention on this is a growing area of geopolitical rivalry. And I think it's very dangerous, you know, as far as the threat of nuclear war, uh, and also the environmental costs of, of these, uh, you know, because that this outpost that was set up, I mean, it was an engineering marvel. They dug deep in the snow and they had these technologies that they could remove snow uh, and establish uh, living uh, quarters uh, basically underground in a subpolar temperature, which is amazing, you know, as far as the science. But on the other hand, with the development of nuclear weapons, there and storing them and the nuclear power, there was uh, some you know serious environmental consequences. Uh, so that's another thing you know people should. I mean, in general, I think uh, our society should question the direction of where we're going. I mean, I think it, you know it's very ominous as far as the threat of war, nuclear war, as well as some of the environmental consequence of these bellicose Cold War policies. And it would be nice to see major countries cooperating over the Arctic. You know, develop. I mean, there was an Arctic treaty that was in place you know, that promoted cooperation and basically non-militarization of the Arctic, respecting the environment, and indigenous people, uh, and um, you know, uh, animal life that's there, and you know, finding ways to use the resources um, in a constructive way, but not in a way that that wouldn't destroy the environment uh, and, and, you know, create war over it. So, but that Arctic treaty not really followed. So let me see again, this imperialistic thrust by the United States justified under the rubric of the cold war. And uh, I think it's, it's a very dangerous area of uh, geopolitical rivalry. Okay. So I have a lot in response to both your article and that synopsis. One thing is just right out of the gate, I, I notice whenever I read about this, that the climate change has resulted in polar ice melting, and that has opened up new shipping lanes up there, or at least greater access. And I know, I mean, I know this becomes a very political issue, but for me, I'm not totally convinced on the causes or the reality of man-made climate change. I know there are cyclical changes in nature. I know that um, fluctuations in the solar energy and solar flares and stuff have an impact, the tilt of the earth, the, uh, the magneticism, the polar flipping, which is in nature. So I don't, you know, I don't just accept right off the bat when I'll read and basically I, I was doing like fair amount of research around the article that you put out. I just want to know a little bit about more about this stuff. And basically every article starts with because of human action, climate change, the polar ice caps are melting. But um, but they it does seem like they are melting. And I mean, there does seem to be more access to shipping. I mean, unless the, there's just wide scale lying about that and the pictures lie and stuff. And I just don't think so. I think that there's more accessibility there. But the thought occurred to me as I was researching what you were talking about, about military presence there, military purposes, that huge complex that they built underground. 
Um, and also, uh, I started to stumble upon like scientific research on both poles. The Antarctic is got, um, I did not realize this, but like 70 or 80,000 tourists a year go to Antarctica. Does that ring a bell to you? Like, have you ever heard that? I didn't know about that. Yeah. That's what it seems like. So, or if I recall correctly, and I started to wonder if the activity, the human activity there was in itself enough to to melt some of the polar ice cap because what they say is that it's a reason for sea level rising as well as also opening up shipping lanes and a lot of other implications but the sea levels don't rise if icebergs melt because the icebergs are in the water they only rise when ice off of land melts so the the sea level rise that they attribute to some of this polar ice melting can only result i think basically from greenland or antarctica um, melting. And, and those are the places with all this human activity. So that's my piece. I don't expect you to comment on that or having thought of that, but you were, you did mention that there were environmental implications of the activity on the poles here. And I'm just wondering to what you're referring. Well, I, yeah. And on the issue of the climate change, uh, yeah, I, I'm not an expert on it. I have, there is, uh, I would recommend to viewers, uh, you know, Theodore Postal is an MIT scientist, uh, and he's, I think, uh, well, it may, it may be some webinars that I attended with him. I don't know if he's published anything, but he was referring to, a, I think, a Danish uh, researcher, Svensmark, uh, who's, who's looking more at the sun rotation and sun patterns. Uh, I think he believes that there's a mix, some human uh, activity combined with, with sun patterns or causing climate change. Um, now, as what my a focus of my article was more on the effects of the nuclear uh, weapons that they were storing on the environment, and because this was a nuclear powered plant, the like the article goes into the history of this Camp Century that was built in the Arctic, uh, and it, it was based on a book. Yet yeah, the author, if people are interested, is uh, Christian Nelson and Henry Nelson are the authors. The book is called Camp Century, The Untold Story of America's Secret Arctic Military Base Under the Greenland Ice. And they detail some of the environmental implications, mainly of, of it because this was a nuclear-powered <coughs> base. So uh, the, you know, and I'm not an expert, but there is a lot of, you know, documentation of the potential perils of any nuclear. We know that, you know, that nuclear-powered plants uh, can leave, you know, isotopes, uh, for, for thousands of years. And we know that they can poison local waterways. Uh, and of course, you know, uh, everybody knows about the implication of Chernobyl and something like that. And Fukushima, like yeah. people don't talk about that. I don't think that was ever <laughs> resolved to my satisfaction. I mean, they were cooling that nuclear power plant with seawater, open seawater. I don't know if they're still doing it, but I mean, that's just washing over these exposed rods night and day. It's really, it was really, the last time I looked at it, it was still scary. I actually bought a, like, a radiation detector when I moved to California because of that. Yeah, and, you know, some are, are presenting nuclear uh, power as a solution to climate change, when, in fact, nuclear power can be very, you know, devastating for the environment. Uh, and, and as we've been discussing, uh, climate change, it's unclear the full extent to which it's caused by fossil fuel, it may be caused also by natural patterns of the sun. Uh, according to some scientists, yeah, we, we may be in line for a period of cooling. Based on the predictions uh, 
Zenzark was making, according to Postal, will be in for a period of cooling and then a, a period of, of superheating. Oh, uh, but, yeah. uh, you know, there is a trajectory of thousands of years where the Earth's temperature changes. Uh, but in any event, in that debate, yeah, I, I think uh, it's a, uh, a iffy position that some take that, that nuclear energy is a solution to fossil fuel-based energy because of the, the risk of climate change. And this book, yeah, is uh, does expose some of the hazards of, of nuclear energy, and particularly in the Arctic uh, landscape. So that is one of the hazards, yeah, as far as also the Cold War, if we're going to be wrapping up the nuclear arms race. And this seems to be entirely manufactured. I mean, uh, I think, you know, as I think we discussed on this program, there have been ample opportunities for cooperation, you know, to, to establish a cooperative relationship between the United States and Russians. But uh, as we've discussed, you know, the current administration, certainly and some of its predecessors, have basically done everything to provoke the Russians and to ignite a new arms race. And I mean, and Trump even pulled out the uh, INF treaty was a treaty trying to regulate intermediate range nuclear weapons. I mean, it's just one class of nuclear weapons, but at least it was a step in the right direction of a treaty trying to regulate that class of weapon. And Trump just pulled out of it. And we have very little regulation, uh, and with the increasing hostilities, uh, or and you know the Biden administration has devoted billions of dollars uh, increase to the nuclear weapons budget of the United States. So we're entering a period like the first Cold War of a very dangerous arms race that could lead to nuclear Armageddon, and that will also have severe environmental costs, as this book showed, including the Arctic, where. They used that to store the weapon in the first Cold War, and they seem to be increasingly uh, driving to control the Arctic and to abandon this. Uh, I think it was a pact that was established uh, in the 90s. Yeah, it was called the Arctic Council, uh, where countries you know, established basically a pact that they would cooperate and promote research to better understand the geography and that they wouldn't fight over it. But that, that's been abandoned. And, you know, Russia sees this as a great security threat because Russia borders, uh, you know, some area of the Arctic border on Russia, and they see the U.S. moving in. And, you know, I quote a Russian uh, admiral in the article. He said, there haven't been so many other forces here for years, not since World War II. Such activities provocative so close to the Russian border uh, where we have important assets by that, I mean, nuclear forces. So it's another provocation directed toward Russia, and we see this aggressive approach with, uh, you know, uh, Biden established, has established this, I guess they call it a diplomatic outpost, but it seems to be more of a military outpost right at the northern tip of Norway. Uh, and that's an overt threat to the Russians. And again, we may go back to the first Cold War where they had this station, Camp Century, and who knows if they're secretly planning a similar kind of station where they could uh, store nuclear weapon pointed at the Russians uh, and then again, we can learn from this book about the serious environmental costs of uh, that nuclear-powered uh, base that they set up then. And I hope you know it's, it's it may very well be they're doing some of the same thing today. So it seems to me like when, after I read your article, I started thinking. Um, first of all, I recall maybe it was ten years ago. I I can't really remember, but uh, I read an op-ed piece in the Wall Street Journal that was written, I think, by Henry Kissinger about we need a new law of the seas. 
And I was thinking about who controls the Arctic, what justification do they have to control it? They, there's been a push to divide up the seas, to not have such a thing as international waters. That, um, And I've also read that the U.S. does police, patrol the Pacific in international waters, and that we really would not have the kind of cheap trade we have with China if the U.S. wasn't keeping pirates at bay. So, I mean, I'm a free market person. So I feel like if it, if it's, you know, I don't really want the U.S. government to subsidize uh, international trade. If we can't, we could probably make things here more cost effectively than some of the Chinese stuff we get if the true cost of transportation were reflected in the price rather than subsidized and reduced by U.S. security. So I actually don't feel like it's the right thing to to do for us to police the world. But I, I also felt like this Titanic submersible, what what policy would they use to say, what policy could could they benefit, use this um, event to benefit from? And it would might be such, something like the U.S. has to go through great expense to rescue people, to secure the waters. We need to own it. Like that is a justification to own it. And I feel like the Ukraine conflict has provided, or they may also use that and probably already have used that as saying, see, because of Russia, now we really need to ramp up our pres uh, our presence in the Arctic. Although I have no doubt that they've always, you know, they think about the, the world on a, on a global basis. They, I'm sure they've had a, an Arctic, you know, an, a constant, you know, the Rand Corporation or whoever the think tanks are, they, they, they divide the world up into regions and they are constantly um, writing articles and doing research on a strategy for different regions so they can do um, they can use the Russian thing for that. But also the excuse of because Russia they're using um, to bring Norway and Sweden into NATO, which has to be I, I mean, Ukraine is bad, too. But, and Crimea would be absolutely the beginning of World War Three if Ukraine if Ukraine joined NATO because Russia occupy, you know, R Russia Crimea opted to be a part of Russia and and but because the US and Ukraine claim they believe Crimea to be a part of Ukraine if NATO if Ukraine joins NATO then Russia will be occupying a NATO country but short of that Norway and Sweden I mean are on Russia's doorstep and as they go through the process of becoming part of NATO also because Russia I feel like that fosters our takeover of the Arctic. And it's, you know, yes, it's provocative, but is the NATO thing, do you think, folds into the Arctic strategy or is that strictly a Ukraine um, concept there? Well, I, I think it's all tied together and, and it's a very aggressive imperialistic U.S. strategy uh, that's dividing the world and, you know, a similar way you know, in World War I. Uh, and uh, that's, you know, pointed, all guns pointed at Russia. And, you know, the, the U.S. wants to dominate the Arctic. Uh, uh, they want to expand NATO. Uh, they're incorporating, you know, Sweden, Norway, uh, more and more into their orbit, Finland, uh, and they're, you know, they've got the missiles pointed at Russia. Uh, I mean, they they provoked this war in Ukraine. They've openly talked about regime change in Russia. Uh, they're pouring a billion of dollars into Ukraine. So, you know, it's all tied together. Uh, a very aggressive militaristic strategy. And I mean, there was a period of hope with the, you know, at the end of the first Cold War with the collapse of the Soviet Union, uh, that there could be positive, you know, U.S.-Russian relations and this would pave the way for a new era of peace. 
and that the arms, you know, arms race, nuclear arms race was obsolete now that the first Cold War had ended. But we see the U.S. has deliberately provoked a second Cold War, and some of it is in reaction to the emergence of Vladimir Putin. Because, I mean, really, the U.S. wanted it to, to be in a dominant position. They couldn't uh, accept um, an equal relationship with, with Russia. And, you know, Russia in the 90s was led by Boris Yeltsin, who uh, basically sold off a lot of the country's assets and, and uh, presided over a much weakened Russian state. And then Putin came in and tried to reassert the strength of the Russian Federation, reassert its control over various provinces and reassert its stature. And that's what the U.S. couldn't accept. You know, they want to be a uh, big dog, so to speak, uh, and they couldn't accept a rival uh, a power in any way. And they want to dominate, you know, the c entire Central Asia region is rich in oil and gas. And, you know, and Russia is a, a country that's very rich in natural resources. So they were happy to have a pliable leader like Yeltsin who basically allowing U.S. corporate penetration and the uh, beginning of the takeover of some of Ra Russia's natural resources following the privatization process. And Putin, you know, started pushing back against that, reasserting Russian power and greater independence. And that's when the war on him commenced. And you have this talk of regime change and you have this massive imperialistic buildup. So, yeah, I think the Arctic strategy, this aggressive push into the Arctic now, uh, and there is even a document I point to, you know, uh, in my article, I think it's called Reclaiming Arctic Dominance or something, uh, and you can find a link to it in the article. So, I mean, they're very open about this strategy, and this, again, fits a much larger uh, global strategy, uh, a, a very aggressive U.S. foreign policy that's put us uh, in a position where we're threatening uh, outbreak of World War III right now, and we're investing so many of our resources, you know, for Americans, it's it's terrible that so many of our resources are being inv invested in, in military and in imperialistic pursuits, while there's so many uh, problems domestically and underfunding of vital institution like education and healthcare and infrastructure, and that's where the government, uh, you know, Americans should want their taxpayer dollars put into creating a better living uh, quality of life in America and better functioning institutions. And instead, uh, we're um, devoting so many resources to these very destructive military uh, operations that, that are threatening World War III and may devastate the, the, the ecosystem in the Arctic is just one ramification. Uh, with the you know, nuclear arms race, uh, is very dangerous. Uh, I mean, we saw you know, many years saying we're in a dangerous moment like the Cuban missile crisis. Uh, and it's really, there's no, no reason for that. Uh, so two things. One is I will put these um, references that you're making as well as links to your article in the show notes, which will be on monicasdeepdives.com. Um, but uh, what you're saying, so you're bringing up your ideological viewpoint, which is we should not be spending trillions of dollars on not defense, but aggressive preparations for imperialist imperialism. And I, I agree with you, we shouldn't be spending on imperialism. And But the reason I feel like we're in a post-ideological world is actually, you know, uh, my first inkling of this happened when this, when that Yeltsin situation was emerging. So I don't know if I was at Harvard at the time. So I went to Harvard 
um, I've talked about, I had an economics undergrad there, but I transferred from community college. So I was only there for a couple of years. And my dad like was worried that I would become a socialist, whatever. And to my amazement, when I went there and took economics, they would teach like economics, pure, like neoliberal economics. And then they would say, but you might want to not take the economically efficient outcome for policy reasons because you want a safety net or you want to mix society, you want a little socialism, whatever, social democracy. I don't know. So they presented their ideology and they were like, this is the science of economics and this is the ideology. So some Harvard guys, I don't know who was it, Jeffrey Sachs or whatever. I don't know. I can't remember. Went over there to advise Russia on how to oversee the end, the breakup of the Soviet Union. And I remember, like, to my shock and horror that they were not, their prescriptions weren't, like, uh, you know, entrepreneurial, free market. You know, they didn't just say, well, like, just take down the barriers of trade, take down the barriers and take down um, the regulatory barriers and the political corruption and everything. That's what I wanted to see. It was just a liberation of the system and the the and especially as i've looked at it in retrospect the corruption the way that they um privatized the public resources i was talking to somebody who was from there who said they went around told told people oh yeah here's your like share of gazprom or whatever and they had been so used to having like useless worthless rubles and the way it was presented to them it was basically like worth nothing and then like the oligarchs came around and bought them all up on pennies you know pennies on the ruble and then they amassed like uh their assets became amassed among this like small group of private oligarchs now this is literally just somebody from there telling me what they think happened so i can't say it's like a historical <laughs> survey or the level of um, scholarship that you would bring to such an analysis, but it was the beginning of an eye-opening for me that these people who understood real economics were over there corrupting other countries for like more as a mercantilist thing. And um, I remember being really shocked and disappointed in that. And I feel like the way they ended the Cold War is kind of the way they're ending the drug war, not in like liberty, but in a you know, in corporatism or corruption or, you know what I mean? Like just using the power of the state, like almost a fascistic or corporate imperialist way, which I feel is why we have common ground is that like neither of us, neither you nor I have the answers. You know, you know, I'm sure we were both in favor of, well, I don't know about you, but like the Soviet Union seemed like it wasn't working. It was not a good system and it was better to have it, see it um, fade away. But it was corrupted from the get-go, I think, by us. So you can comment on that if you want. That's just like my opinion, not really a question. Yeah, well, I, I think you're right. I, I think the history bared that out, that uh, it was not a free market system that was instituted in the Soviet Union. It was some kind of uh, cronyist uh, neo-mercantilist system where uh, when Yeltsin came in uh, through a corrupt process, he sold all, you know, these auctions uh, took place, but they were rigged in favor of cronies of Yeltsin uh, or, you know, uh, wealthy uh, mafia-connected figures who were able to purchase privatized state industry basically for a fraction of what they were actually worth. Uh, and so the, so the the Russian government was left impoverished and the wealth was transferred into the hand of a small number uh, of oligarchs. And some of them uh, had ties to the West, 
and certain Westerners, like you know, Mark Rich was this corrupt uh, West uh, you know, American who Clinton pardoned because I know he all this money uh, to his campaign, the Democratic Party. But you know, he was starting to take control over aspects of the Russian oil industry, and as was Exxon Mobil. Uh, so uh, there was an element of piracy as well as this yeah, neo mercantilism and um, corruption that had really nothing to do with instituting a, a, a genuine free market system. So I, I think that is historically accurate analysis. And you know, Putin, for all his flaws, you know, Russia really needed a strong leader to put a stop to this process and stand up to these gangster elements. And I mean, Putin, I think, has a certain fraction of the oligarchy in his corner that he's favored. But uh, he had, you know, he did reassert Russian, more Russian control and autonomy over their economy. And these oligarch elements became part of the lobby against Putin. And some worked in collaboration with British MI6. You know, they started spreading rumors about Putin that he was a murderer, uh, an assassin. And all this misinformation we've seen, it started with those uh, wealthy elements who lost out when Putin re began reclaiming Russian control over its economy. And there were American oligarchs like Bill Browder, who had political clout in the United States, uh, and they manipulated the media to spread this anti-Putin uh, propaganda that we've lived through for over uh, 10 to 15 years. And it's been very successful propaganda that many liberals support. Even, I think, uh, you know, uh, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. has warned that Biden is planning a direct ground war against Russia and preparing U.S. soldiers to begin fighting and dying in the quagmire in Ukraine. Uh, and public opinion has been prepared for this. And many liberals are the most gung-ho uh, supporters and hawks uh, on the Ukraine war. Uh, and, you know, it's the liberal or pseudo-liberal media that's been the target of this propaganda, like CNN, MSNBC with the worst, with, with Rachel Maddow, the Russiagate queen. She's a Rhodes Scholar, if that means anything to you. She's what? A Rhodes Scholar, which yeah, to well, me is a red she, flag. She, she, I don't she, know how far down that rabbit hole. history as a propagandist of the Goebbels type who's helped uh, mobilize public sentiment to support a uh, Vietnam-type quagmire and a war that that is leading yeah, potentially to a, a full-out world war, as we've been discussing, and these aggressive imperialistic uh, policies directed at Russia, including the attempt to basically colonize the Arctic and the pristine environment there. So uh, this is all, I think, very dubious, what, we, what we've lived through. Well, that actually, that you bring up the media, is a nice segue into the other article I wanted to focus on today, which I will read the headline and then the first um, sentence, which is mainstream media colludes with U.S. government to conceal source of Syria's heartbreaking humanitarian crisis. Illegal U.S. bombing raids, brutal economic sanctions and incredibly brazen theft by U.S. forces of 66,000 barrels of Syrian oil per day, 80 percent of its total output have visited a biblical-scale tragedy upon the Syrian people that has battered them virtually back to the Stone Age. Now, that's a pretty serious uh, accusation, but I have to say what's happening in Syria. I just can't believe that they even 
um, have any resilience whatsoever, yet you'll see pictures of them smiling, you know, and, and you'll see Assad still has his, uh, you know, looks like he's not living in a war-torn country, but it's just unbelievable what's happening over there. Tell us a little more about that. Yeah, well, it was very jarring. I, I attended a webinar um, a few weeks ago or a month ago, and there were, you know, Syrian doctors who were speaking, uh, and it was jarring to hear their descriptions of how bad the country has suffered. Uh, you know, and I mean, they have no electricity. You know, uh, the economy has been devastated. Uh, youth, they said, you know, have no hope. I mean, food, food is scarce. Uh, people are going hungry. Uh, you know, the earthquake compounded the ravages of the war. And she, one doctor said, you know, that the, the social fabric has just been destroyed. Um, and, you know, the youth are, are kind of aimless and, and hopeless. There's no economic prospects. You know, schools, I guess a lot of schools were shuttered during the war. And they're not uh, well-educated, even well-fed. And there's crime, and uh, it's just awful what's going on there. And I mean, the media totally misled the American public to blame this. You know, they create this. I mean, they do the same with Putin. They create these cartoon figures that are apparently, you know, the incarnate of evil, and yeah, hate their own people, all their problems, <laughs> and yet somehow they survive in power all those years, and they actually have a lot of support. They never explain why. Um, and in this case, I mean, the media basically hid that it was the United States poured, it was one of the largest, I think it was the largest covert operation since the operation in Afghanistan in the 80s, the army of the Mujahideen, a billion at least was expanded in the operation Timber Sycamore to arm the jihadist rebels. And it was acknowledged even by Joe Biden, there were no moderate rebels, you know, uh, when stuff came out, they're saying, oh, we're supporting the moderate rebels. But then Biden admitted there's no moderate rebels. I mean, these were hardline jihadist extremists. Many of them were foreigners bent on overthrowing the Assad government, who was a secular nationalist government, uh, and instituting um, you know a uh, theocratic uh, state along the model of the Taliban. And they just tore up the country. Uh, they were viewed as foreign invaders. Like that, that article was reviewing a documentary by Mark Taliana, which I highly recommend because he captured the voices of ordinary Syrians, and they were saying, you know, it's a lie. What, what you're saying in your media is a lie. And we were, we were subject to a foreign invasion, um, and that's why Assad has retained his popularity. I mean, he helped rally the population against these foreign invaders who literally tore up the country. And, you know, the demonization simply continued in the earthquake. They're blaming him for, in a, you know, media and 60 minutes and all these mainstream uh, shows uh, for stealing the money and that, that the people are suffering because of him and they don't want to uh, acknowledge the reality of how the country had been torn up by uh, foreign invasion and you know jihadist elements and how the u.s has occupied they the u.s occupies parts of northern syria and has stolen a large percentage of its oil uh, blatant threats, and there's pictures of the they take the oil into Iraq and they're stealing their main natural resource. And their ultimate strategy is to weaken Syria, just like what I was saying with Putin, you know, because Assad was more of a nationalist like Putin. He and, and he comes from that lineage. His father, uh, you know, basically, you know, Syria 
had been subjected to to uh, French colonization, had been subjected to U.S. back coup d'état uh, after it gained its independence from France, and these kind of puppet leaders who rule more in Western interests, and Assad established an authentic uh, Syrian government that, yes, it was kind of harsh toward opponents, and not a model democratic regime, but in that kind of environment, it would be very difficult to establish one. And, I mean, he had a big base in Syria because uh, he tolerated different uh, religion and ethnicities. And, I mean, he governed more in the interest of Syrian people or established Syrian control over their resources, stood up to the Israelis, projected a strong image for Syria. Uh, you know, because the Israelis had occupied the Golan Heights during the Six-Day War, and he was fighting against that. So that was a popular cause uh, is in Syria. Uh, so he has, you know, the dynasty has had you know, a lot of respect among the Syrian people, and that continued because uh, they've stood up to this foreign invasion. But the U.S., you know, wants a pliable puppet leader, you know, like the Shah of Iran or Yeltsin type. Uh, and so they, you know, they don't like a, a strong leader like the Assad, so they've been trying to overthrow them since 1970. And they support Islamic element. This was not the first Islamic uprising. In the early 80s, there was an Islamic uprising against Assad, and that was also backed by the Reagan administration covertly. And yes, it was quite brutally suppressed, but uh, you know uh, that's the reality. If there was a, 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 an uprising supported by a foreign government of religious extremists here in the United States, most Americans would support the violent repression of that yeah people people don't talk about it. i have a lot to respond to what you're saying but um start with that it, there was if i if we're talking about the same thing in 1984 there was an uprising in homs yeah. and i think like 10,000 people up ro rose against or were actually maybe even killed by what they call bloody assad bashar's father yes but that was a Muslim Brotherhood operation, and the Muslim Brotherhood was, I, I, people don't realize this, I think maybe even at that time, like some weird period of time, Egypt and Syria were one country. Is that, am I hallucinating? Well, like, I think before, that's before, really, that was with Nasser, that was in the uh, Yes, so, so Nasser cracked yeah. the Muslim Brotherhood and got the guy to confess that it was a British intelligence operation. So this was a foreign coup of radical Muslims, which which the people who who um, advocate for war here, a lot of times they say, well, it's 9-11 and it's Muslims and blah, blah, blah. But what they don't realize is that what they were doing, you don't have to like it, but you can't demand like a lot of civil rights and human rights and um, not putting down these kind of uprisings over there only to you to go over to those countries, bomb them open their prisons and then say we have terrorism here and we have to suppress our own human rights and civil rights because of that. Like, it, it, like what you're saying, it, what would you do if it was you? And I'm not, um, you know, saying I was on the ground and know what's what, but it was totally, there's certainly the, their narrative is plausible. Well, yeah. And several points. One is that the United States, you know, the war on terror is a complete hypocrisy. The United States has been supporting armed jihadist elements for a long time. It's a strategy that goes back in the Cold War, and it was actually laid out. There was a conference in Princeton where some uh, elite bigwigs uh, decided that to fight communism, we should arm the Islamists. So they supported the, uh, and to support more leftists. I mean, Nasser was more of a leftist government. It was trying to take uh, you know, local control over the oil that the U.S. wanted to control, and they preferred it, you know, uh, you know, so he's the enemy, just like uh, Putin's the enemy, because he's asserting 
Russian control over their natural resources, uh, the more independent economy from dominance and exploitation. And in the Middle East, the strategy, and, and in Russia too, the, the CIA has supported jihadists in Chechnya to destabilize Russia. They supported Muslim extremists in Xinjiang province in China. Many say that that was one of the key purposes of the war of Afghanistan, because Afghanistan is next to Xinjiang province, so they could cultivate Islamic extremists in Xinjiang to destabilize the communist regime in China. And that was a strategy pursued for many years up to the present in the Middle East. They've done it in Libya. They support Islamic extremists against the secular nationalist Gaddafi, who is similar to Assad, who took local control of the economy, uh, nationalized the oil, used the oil wealth to develop Libya. Assad was doing the same, although he was not a communist uh, or a socialist, but he had some nationalized industry, mixed economy, but you know some was nationalized, and it was under control of Syrian-owned business, uh, not foreign interests. And that's why, I mean, an authentic Syrian leader, he may not have a perfect record by any stretch, but he is a leader who represents Syria, who ensured the economy is controlled by Syria and has the best interests of Syria to uh, a large extent uh, in mind compared to these Islamic forces. So, And yeah, they're bent on tearing up the country. He's going to have to react. Uh, he's not going to necessarily do it nicely, but we would have the same thing again here if, if there was a religious rebellions sparked by outsiders, the government would have legitimacy in, in putting it down. So I have a few things there too. One is, so anytime I meet anybody who's remotely from Syria or has experience there, and I, I guess maybe I'm extra interested in Syria because my grandmother was uh, brought over here when she was a baby and left as an orphan and her father, I guess my great grandfather went back to Syria. So that's why I look the way I look, even though she was raised by Irish nuns. So I don't really have the cultural stuff, but it's interesting to me. He went back and like, he didn't like it here. He went back. So I guess it wasn't that bad. Um, I don't know, but, uh, the only real complaint I've heard from anyone inside Syria are, you know, of course, I'm not going to run into any of the poor impoverished people living in the dirt. I, I talk to people who are here Live, you know, living here. So they obviously have the money. Um, and the only thing they said was like, they're desperate. So if you have money in Syria, they want you to give it to them to fight the war. Like they want to have extremely high quote tax rates on people who have foreign money and live in Syria. And of course, as a libertarian, like I hate that, but even on the left and the right, people are starting to realize that, um, you can't take your, your statehood for granted and that, foreign elements or even, you know, world government elements are um, on the move trying to undermine any ability you have to control your own territory. So I try to be a little open-minded when it comes to that stuff. But two other things. One is, were you talking about Chechens and um, using radical Islam to, I think you were talking about the same thing I'm thinking of, um, destabilize oil-rich countries in Central Asia, which is where peak oil, I think, is kind of and moving away somewhat, you know, not radically, but they, they do say that the peak oil is moving towards Central Asia um, or uh, oil reserves are, are accelerating there as opposed to maybe in decline. I don't know. Something like that. It's definitely an oil rich region. 
And there's a quote I read in a book called Dollars for Terror, which was written before 9-11 and obviously long before the Boston Marathon bombing. But it included a quote by Graham Fuller saying that we can destabilize Central Asia the way we've destabilized the Middle East by using radical Islam. I don't know if you know who Graham Fuller is. He was the CIA chief in Afghanistan. And I don't know if you know what his daughter's married name was. No. Oh, Samantha Fuller Sarnaya. Oh, Sarnaya? Yeah, that'll blow your mind because he is the uncle of the Sarnaya brothers. They've attributed the Boston Marathon bombing to them. The, the, the official story looked a little fishy from, uh, I read a book about that. Yeah, especially when, I think it was Mueller, the head of the FBI, was saying, Did you, do you recognize these two people? And I'm like, well, they work for you and they their actual address is one mile from where you're standing. So there's no way I know who they are. And you don't know who they are. So so what I think is that the that Russia made them not the, the little brother was a dentist, but <laughs> or is going to dental school like that. But the older brother was CIA agent who went to the Jamestown Foundation, like in Jordan or wherever. And I think that Russia just made them. And that's why they were used for other purposes, being patsies, whatever. That's my conspiracy theory. You don't have to like it. But what you're saying is actually in evidence and revolves around this guy, Graham Fuller. The book Mm. is called Dollars for Terror. I'll actually put it in the show notes. Yeah, I'm going to try and get that. Uh, Yeah, it's quite interesting. And um, so, but, uh, but the other thing is that they're... There do seem to be a lot of similarities with Libya in that you have an independent leader who seems to be, uh, you know, patriot for his country and does have certain uses, some of the oil money or whatever for social services. I'm not saying that it's like Saudi Arabia where or even Alaska, where people get paid like negative taxes or something and um, are enticed to live there. I, you know, from what I understand, but they and of course, I'm not a socialist, so. I'm not sure that's the best system. However, it is does seem like a system that those two leaders were employing, at least maybe not in the very best interests of their people, as a libertarian might think, but in the interests of their people. And that um, that along with the fact that these are and I think this is true for everyone that the U.S. orchestrates foreign coups against. And and it really annoys me that Wikipedia has an entry for the Syrian civil war. I mean, this is a prolonged coup attempt by a foreign entity, which is exactly what Libya was. Another parallel there. And then the other thing that I've noticed among everybody, like on Wesley Clark's list, you mentioned like the seven countries they're going to take out, like the majority, or at least the ones they've actually taken out, including Saddam Hussein, are secular leaders who do not use Islam or radical Islam to unite their people. They actually unite, they've, they united countries that were probably in some, in some parts, I don't know, specifically Iraq, Syria, Libya, but I know that in the Middle East, there were patchwork countries kind of stitched together after the Sykes-Picot agreement, where they were trying to undermine any kind of national unity. And I think, and I rarely think anything backfires, but I think over time, and Egypt too, these these patchwork countries actually allowed secular leaders who could um, have some pan-Arab appeal or unite different factions within their country uh, on along common grounds. So then those are the ones that we take out. So we say it's a war on radical Islam, but who do we take out? We don't take out Saudi Arabia, who's actually had 15 of the hijackers on 9-11, according to the official narrative, were Saudi. But we take out Assad in Syria, who's secular, Hussein in Iraq, who's secular, 
Gaddafi, who's secular. They tried to take out Nasser, who was secular. And I, I feel like it's it's pretty obvious that they're after destabilizing the region for their global position. But I would like to ask you, you know, you can respond to that. And also, like, why? What do you think is is just pure imperialism? Do you think Israel is an imperialist outpost? Do you think the tail wags the dog? What is it? Is it oil? Is it East versus West? Like, what do you think the big picture is? But I would like you to talk about a little bit about the parallels and the fact that these guys come out are secular. Well, yeah, I think your analysis is right on the mark. And it's about the oil, I mean, and also control of the region. And they don't want other powers gaining access to that oil, whether China or Russia. They want pliable leaders. Uh, and, you know, Gaddafi, uh, these were more independent uh, nationalist leader. There are differences. I think Gaddafi was more of a socialist, at least when he came in. Gaddafi actually, you know, when he came in in 69, he, he nationalized uh, all the oil for Libya uh, and he kicked out the U.S. military. I think Assad was less of a socialist, but, um, you know, there was a mixed uh, economy with some nationalized industry in Syria. Yeah, and, and Gaddafi uh, oscillated. There were a period where he opened it up to some extent to foreign interests, uh, and then he, he closed shop a little more again. Um, but, you know, he was always uh, an independent leader, and, you know, he was, a, uh, Gaddafi was basically an heir of Nasser, and he was also promoting, you know, he was, Nasser's goal was to unify the Arab countries under more of a socialist model, uh, so they, they can control their own resources and stand up to the West uh, uh, through a strong united front. And Gaddafi was promoting also Pan-Africanism. And he was investing some of uh, uh, Libya's oil wealth in industrialization in Africa and supporting the uh, African Union and the idea of African unity so that Africa can strengthen itself and not be susceptible to foreign imperialistic uh, influence. Uh, so these are threatening ideas from the vantage point of a Western uh, imperialist or American who wants to uh, American neoconservative who wants to dominate the whole earth and wants to keep <coughs> excuse me these outlying regions weak and easily exploitable. Uh, so these are the leaders they go after, and they'll use fundamentalist Islam to do it. And they used that to target the Soviet Union. They want a weak Russia. Uh, they're you know thrilled when the Soviet Union broke up, and they wanted to keep it weak. Uh, and Putin had the ambition of, of reviving aspects of the Russian Empire, or at least strengthening Russia. And that that uh, ran counter to American designs to dominate. You know, they saw an opportunity the fall of the Soviet Union in the Cold War to dominate the entire Eurasian region which is considered you know, key to global dominance and has abundance of oil and, and gas. And yeah, they'll use, uh, they'll fund Islamic elements to destabilize um, country like Russia, China, uh, Egypt, Libya. And that's who the U.S. was supporting in NATO in the Operation Odyssey Dawn. It was really an Islamic rebellion against Gaddafi. Benghazi, where they had the protest, was a headquarter of al-Qaeda and center of Islamic resistance. And that's why the war on terror is a complete fraud. And the U.S. has been on the side of Islamic regimes or Islamic terrorist groups in many, many different countries. Uh, and we don't even know about some of these episodes of uh, terrorist bombings. Um, sorry, my 
about yeah, the, uh, right. terrorist bombings, uh, you know, some were uh, former CIA assets who were involved. Uh, it raises, uh, you know, question marks about whether those were some kind of false flag operations. You know, I'm talking about like the bombing of the USS Cole in the late 90s, or the World oh, Trade know. Center. You know, and the FBI had infiltrated informants. And their question if those are not black flag operations designed to uh, intimidate, you know, to create fear among the public of Islamic terrorism to justify more and more U.S. Uh, aggressive intervention in the Middle East and elsewhere where they're really actually siding with, with Islamic elements. And, you know, the Saudi regime was uh, most of the hijackers or alleged hijackers came from Saudi Arabia. And that's a regime known for exporting extremism across the Middle East uh, for harboring terrorists. So one immediate thing and then a couple of items on the false flag stuff, whether I'm not saying that you believe that stuff, but I do want to make a couple points about that. Um, but on the media front, I had a um, an acquaintance who went to overseas to Europe to do some media training or whatever. So she was in and had occasion to talk to media people. And I would tell her we don't they don't really have foreign desks anymore. Like it's just like when you when you see like the traffic or there used to be helicopters over an accident or whatever. It used to be like a helicopter from every single news source. They don't even have that anymore. So. Uh, I said, they just consolidate the news. They basically write it from here. And she just thought I was too cynical. And she wrote to me after she got there and she said she was just sitting next to some guy who was like completely complaining. Oh, it was the New York Times or what? Just complaining and complaining that he would do all this work. He would write his articles and he would send them back and they would literally just like twist the facts and change the whole thing around to suit the narrative. But they would still put his name on it and say that he was a correspondent on the ground in this other country. So feel like anecdotally yeah that's just an anecdote but i feel like the media reports are absolutely like in the headline of your article they are colluding in crafting this narrative and then the other thing was about the false flags the chemical weapons and other things that 19 i think it was the 1993 or 92 world trade center bombing the first one i believe that guy's name was imad salem if i'm not i'm not mistaken i maybe it's a little bit different from that but there, I had on my old website before it got taken down a video of CBS News back in the day. So, like in the early 90s, CBS News interviewing this guy who had, or at least uh, playing the tape that he had secretly recorded his FBI handler or CIA handler. Because you remember that that first bomb in the World Trade Center, it did go off and it killed six people, but it didn't bring down the buildings. And what he said was what he was saying, what his claim was and why he recorded that he was saying, you told me to get in there and um, infiltrate this cell. But I was supposed to swap out like dummy gunpowder and you took me off the job and swapped in live stuff. People got killed. Like, what's wrong with you? And the guy was like, yeah, yeah, stuff like that happens, whatever. I mean, it was just it was very clear and it was on the news. So that just shows you how things have changed in the media. I'll see if I can find that. Um, because I might actually have it on my hard drive and I'll put it in the show notes and I'll share it with There's you. There's a research on that, yeah. And from what I found, yeah, there were a lot of CIA assets, you know, in those cells or FBI informants. Uh, it could have been all staged, you know, set up uh, or some powerful people wanted it to go forward uh, because it was part of a strategy of tension uh, where they, they want to keep the public on edge and fear uh, these kind of terrorist attacks. And that's how they could justify the kind of foreign policy we've been discussing, the very aggressive, militaristic foreign policies 
uh, whether in the Middle East or as well as, as, as Russia, you know, targeting Russia now. So another thing that I had just right off of mainstream media, because I used to follow this really, really closely when, when I had a radio show, I was like, it's really hard on the radio, like it's call-in show to talk about stuff like this because the call-in show is driven by callers and they, and no one will call you if they don't feel like they know enough about the topic and have a strong emotional reaction to it. So I ended up, you know, when I really wanted to have callers, which I was called upon to try to do, I would have to talk about just what was kind of the low-hanging fruit in the headlines for the day or domestic stuff that people had strong feelings about. You could talk about gun rights, you could talk about welfare, you could talk about education, but to try to talk about what was happening in Syria, I would have to fill up the whole three hours. So I sometimes I would choose to do that, and I would do a lot, a lot of research. So I was very familiar with the topic. I basically consumed everything there was to consume. So one time I was watching Fox News and I saw them talking about the chemical weapons attack, the first one that Assad supposedly did to his own people. And I was looking and the lady, the footage that's playing while the anchor is speaking is, if you can see it, it's a cave and it has chemical weapons like wrapped up in cellophane, like tied with rope. And, and I'm like, so Assad is dropping chemical weapons on his own people, the guy who runs the army. And he's operating out of a cave. And I thought, I was like, okay, that footage looks familiar to me. So I went to Press TV, which I is, you know, it's a different kind of propaganda. I'm not like an advocate of Press TV, but I, they, you, would, you will get counter narratives on Press TV. I don't even know if it still exists anymore, but I used to check that site. Yeah, it exists. It's Iranian television, yeah. It's Iranian, yeah. So I found the full clip, and what it was was... The rebels, quote, rebels, which are called the foreign coosters, they had to go to the hospital because they blew themselves up with these chemicals that they were using from, you know, a cave. And then the local TV in Syria went to their cave and took all the pictures. And on the things, there was there were barrels of and I think this is still on my Facebook page, Monica Perez show. Um, there are barrels of uh, chemical weapons and barrels of antidote. And I think it was antidote, or maybe they mixed two things. And one had like Republic of Germany written all over it. And the other one had Qatar written all over it. And I was like, I don't even care if you know the context. Just look at those pictures. Do you think that Assad is sourcing chemical weapons from Germany and Qatar? Like, it's just on the thing. Just look at it. So you don't have to believe whatever. But all I'm saying is there is like hidden in plain sight or like evidence out of the mainstream media that any thinking person would say, OK, this official narrative is not supported by the very pictures they're putting up there. Yeah, I mean, I, I fully believe what you're saying. In fact, yeah, I, I uh, did an article on t this guy, Theodore Postal, an MIT a scientist who's a top weapons expert, and he did very careful forensic analysis of these sites of alleged chemical warfare bombing attacks and he found that either those attack it wasn't chemical weapons that were used or that the trajectory uh made it clear that it came from rebel controlled territory and that it was the rebels who carried it out as a false flag attack but in in several of the cases that were used by the U.S. government to justify bombing strikes and more aggressive action in Syria, it was clear that there was no chemical attack at all. In one case, there was a bomb that hit some kind of fertilizer plant, so the air was, uh, you know, there was debris in the air. But if you go on the scene, you know, people would die uh, 
if they were anywhere near those chemical weapons, and there were people just like right. walking around. And one place they they put like a horse carcass to make it look really bad. But yeah, <laughs> people interview and in this documentary by Mark Taliana, they interview people you know from the area like Kanche Kuhn was one. And he said, like, you know, people were walking around. You know, I saw something in the nude, but then I went outside. <laughs> so, I mean, it's like an optical illusion in some cases. And, you know, they were aid workers. The aid workers would have been killed if they were actually exposed to sarin gas, which they were not. They were not killed. Uh, right. So a lot of those incidents are, are staged or it's a false. Yeah, the rebels are carrying it out because they want their only hope of victory is for foreign military intervention. I mean, that was a strategy used by the, right. the Kosovo Liberation Army. That's another Islamic terrorist organization that the U.S. government aligned with in the 90s in the Balkan War. And that was their strategy. They carried out these provocation and atrocities, uh, as well as other uh, Croats and Muslims. They would dress up as Serb and commit massacres, blame the Serb. Literal false flag. And they want uh, foreign intervention. In that case, it worked out better for them the KLA, but in these the Syrian case, I think there was very limited support and Assad for them among the population at large, and they couldn't ultimately prevail. Libya, they succeeded in overthrowing Gaddafi, but the country was turned into utter chaos uh, and a, a failed state, and you know, saw the re revival of slavery and mass numbers of refugees trying to escape uh, and then Europe becomes flooded with, with desperate refugees. So, I mean, nobody benefits from this except a small number of our weapons makers. Uh, and yet these you know, neoconservatives keep doing these diabolical uh, sheen and intervention that, that cause such chaos and misery. And then they go as back you, on yeah. America and Europe as well. You have to uh, count. Hillary Clinton as a neoconservative, if you're going to. Absolutely. Gonna, yeah. She's one of the yeah. dominant, she was one of the most hawkish figures. Yes. And, you know, a terrible uh, leader that America has developed in the last generation. Well, I do, I do have, um, a few comments on what you just said. I know I, are you, do you have a little extra time sure. or are you, you ready to go? Okay. Cause I know you have, uh, other things going on. So, um, I just want to point out, like when you say like the rebels, I, I, they could be rebels. They could be homegrown. It could be just an organic group of people. Maybe they're radical and they don't think that they want Sharia law. I really do not know. Um, as far as Syria goes, I have my suspicions. But with Libya, there is hidden audio from um, Islam al Saif Gaddafi calling Qusinich, which I'm sure we've talked about, saying, like, these are not our people. Like, these are this, um, they're Chechens or whatever. Like, they are foreigners in here. Like, there's 1,000 of them. And they're going around beheading people and taking videos of it. And this is crazy. These are not our people. The government is not even doing any of the things they're saying. So I would say that rebellion was totally set up. But even regardless of that, I think it's important to think about ideology. And I, I realize or um, foundational principles of civilization and nation states, which, again, like, as a libertarian, I, you know, I believe in mom and pop entrepreneurship. I do not like government encroaching. My father was a minarchist. He was like, okay, the government can um, have courts, police, and an army to prevent invasion. Like, I, I'm somewhere, but, you know, I can, I can accept anything on that narrow spectrum. Um, but even if you do, if you accept the U.S. Constitution and don't even go to whether you're liberal or conservative, left or right, 
the U.S. Constitution, from what I read, the number one book that was a foundation for that, um, there were a couple of sources. One was The Law of Nations by Vattel, which is a French book. And um, when you when you say like a rebel, this is a country that has an established religion. It has support. Me, I mean, um, governments. It has support. It's was recognized and is, I think, res- recognized internationally as a legitimate government. Um, uh, whether you have a democratic process of one person, one vote or an electoral process or not, you know, I don't even know. I don't even want to be, you have a monarchy. I just, I'm not even going to go there if it is a functioning government. So when, uh, we identify people as rebels, like you have to understand that a handful of people lobbying chemical weapons is not a justification to intervene in somebody else's country. Like we don't, if our country is designed to be, you know, for the people, by the people, and of the people, we we have to be able to understand how our authority and resources are being used. And we, you know, I, for one, am not convinced that it's within four corners of the Constitution that we go to Syria to support rebels, you know, whether just by money or arms or whatever. We, we, we don't even have the capacity to understand who's right and who's wrong. And you don't, you know, I just, I feel like it's, it's fundamentally unprincipled for us to get involved in these things. Yet people of principle in this country will say, like when I was on the radio, they would say like, but he's a monster. It's like, what? Like there, there's no, you know, what would you say? Like what, where would, where would the line be drawn for you of where we would be justified in intervening in a foreign country. And would Syria have been justified, I think I've asked you this before, in intervening after Waco and going into Texas and saying, hey, like, you need to allow the press access to this site, you know, or you killed your own people. Like, you know, w- where do you draw the line? Where When does it become okay? And uh, you know, how well, do you evaluate I think it? most, I mean, military interventions have underlying, you know, hidden pretexts and motives. And, I mean, nation states are not generally moral agents. Uh, and it's more for PR that they claim so. And I mean, I think the history bears out the uh, often terrible ramifications uh, of foreign or Western imperial intervention in other countries' conflict, if it is a legitimate civil war. And that is debatable in the Syrian uh, case, uh, whether it was a civil war or was really a foreign-backed uh, uprising against the government. I mean, I think there were legitimate uh uh, grievances against the Assad government, and, and there was some legitimate disaffection and protests. But then I think that movement was hijacked by Islamic elements. Some of them, they were clearly funded by foreigners. Uh, many of them may have been foreigners. Uh, you know, and and when people protest, sometimes they're not necessarily wanting the overthrow of the government. They may be protesting particular policy. Uh, whether it's pension reform or something like that. Right, so right. So that's not the same, you know, and those could be peaceful r- rallies but hijacked by uh, a number of extremists who turn this into a violent uprising to overthrow the government and try and engender foreign intervention. And that was clearly the case in Libya, as you detailed. So there's no legitimacy. The United States has its own imperial objectives. And they're just uh, demonizing Assad for their own purposes to manipulate the American public in supporting a brazenly imperialistic intervention that has so disaster for the Syrian people, just like the Libyan people. So it's an illusion 
uh, that you're standing up for human rights if you, you know, because you're saying, oh, Assad is a monster and we have to stop him. But you're not. You don't understand the, the country. It's a, you know, um, yeah, they may take certain incidents, but they don't explain. You know, again, any government, if they're fake with, faced with a foreign back uprising, Islamic uh, or religious extremists and terrorists, uh, is going to, you know, resort to some harsh methods to put them down. Uh, but they don't paint any context in, in our media. So people are simply ill-informed and they end up aligning with, again, imperialistic policy that, that's so devastation. And, you know, there's this, the, the, the webinar I was part of, they explain how horrible the Syrian uh, doctors were just explaining how bad life was in Syria because of this foreign invasion. So, uh, you know, people listening to this podcast and others should be aware that there's a, a long track record of the U.S. just intervening for self-serving purposes, uh, drumming it up as uh, some kind of humanitarian motive, and then devastating the country. And and we're seeing that in Ukraine now. They're using the Ukrainian people as pawns. And, I mean, Ukrainian youth have been sacrificed, much like youth during World War One, for basically a, a, a lie. And, you know, the leader Zelensky is billed as this Winston Churchill or Mother Teresa, and yet he was cited the Pandora Papers for siphoning off all this wealth, uh, and he's been uh, promoting policy that deindustrializes his own country and sell his own people in a war they can never win. Uh, they're just sending them into the front line to their death. And the U.S. did this many times. You know, they used the Hmong and Laos. They fought a secret war. They just sent the Hmong people to their death because there was a certain strategic uh, objective. Uh, that hindsight doesn't even make much sense. So we're seeing that over and over again. And, uh, you know, that's why the teaching of history is important to study. I think Americans don't understand history very well because they devalue history education. You know, I, I teach history because I think it's important. If you better understand the history, uh, you won't see a repetition of, of uh, historical atrocities. And it's important to study the history of the Middle East and how they've been colonized and why leaders like Assad emerged and have some popularity as anti-colonial figures. Uh, and if we can understand that, then we'll start to question this narrative that he's just this butcher. Uh, and just like Russia, I mean, they have a history also being you know, subjugated by the West. Uh, and you saw that in the 90s. So, you know, if you can understand why leaders like Putin and, and Assad have, have some support in their countries, you're not going to be involved in these reckless regime change uh, operations supporting it. So uh, that's why I one thing I promote more emphasis on learning about history, both American history and other regions of the world to better understand their politics. And I mean, America gets itself involved in disasters where they're on the wrong side. And it's a disaster for America, whether it's Vietnam, Ukraine now. I mean, these wars blow back on Americans, so it's vital for Americans to understand how they're led astray by their leaders and media and to, to, to take interest in world politics so they adopt much smarter policies, which I think will inevitably be much less interventionist. Yeah, I, I feel like the sanctions, the impact that sanctions have, and I mean, I, I do seriously wonder about like Cuba and North Korea. You hear horror stories of how hungry people are and how deprived they are. 
you're saying the same thing about Syria. And I'm beginning to wonder, because I always thought of it as ideological, like, how do you argue for communism, which I absolutely do not and would not, when it's so clear that it doesn't work and the people live in poverty. But I would like to see a pure apples to apples example where sanctions do not apply, because it seems to me that and Syria is a great example because that is not a communist country. It is purely suffering as Iraq did uh, from the sanctions, which to me could not be further. It's it's an, an affront against humanitarianism to say that that our interests in Syria are humanitarian. Well, at the same time, I mean, sanctions, which are just, uh, you know, simply punitive. There's nothing more to it. It doesn't, you know, to anybody who believes in free trade knows that to cut somebody off from trade does not benefit you as a as a trading partner. So not that we were a trading partner with them necessarily, but I'm just saying sanctions are purely punitive and they're purely an attack on the human beings. It's really, it is an atrocity and I really feel like it's an absolutely an act of war. But um, I think that the media has a lot to do with it, which is why the title of your um, article is right to the point that the mainstream media is colluding with the government to conceal the source of Syria's heartbreaking humanitarian crisis. A couple of other articles that I would direct people to from covertactionmagazine.com that we are not going to have a chance to talk about, but that you wrote kind of recently is, um, if you challenge the FBI, they will crush you, says whistleblower at congressional hearing. Um, and then uh, that there were some related articles that you wrote about possible you know, agents provocateur from the government inside uh, on January 6th, which, I mean, that was very courageous of you to write. And, and it was not emotional, it wasn't speculative. It just was like, these are, you know, weird facts. But there's one that completely escaped my view from, I think it was from January 2022. There's absolutely no reason in the world to believe that Bill Clinton is a CIA asset, except for all the evidence. <laughs> so we'll probably never talk about that one, but I do, I'll put it in the show notes for people who want to click through and read some of your other articles. But I highly recommend people go to covertactionmagazine.com and find your other great work. And if there's what else do you have to say and what else do you want people to do or how can they support you? Uh, yeah, and perhaps we can discuss the Clinton article in the future, uh, the future show. Yeah, because, yeah, I, I, I'll be publishing a book in the fall on Bill Clinton and his foreign policy because I studied that for, for, for many years. Uh, and I did some research because you know, I live... Uh, uh, and uh, Tulsa, which is right near Arkansas, so I did research in some libraries in Arkansas about Clinton's you know time as the governor and the MENA affair, where he was very clearly directly involved in overseeing you know criminal operations out of MENA, Arkansas, where they were uh, smuggling drugs and weapons to the Contros in Nicaragua. Um, and yeah, it relates even to Hillary Clinton. I mean, I think it was a very corrupt family. Uh, and he was really a, a political uh, alliance they formed. It was not a real marriage, but uh, these two, you know, caused terrible uh, mayhem and uh, you know terrible criminality in their career. And yeah, Clinton had been recruited, uh, according to Cordmeyer Jr. He was recorded. He was a very well known CIA operative. Oh yes, he was. Mary Meyer's husband. I think he was the last, uh, Mary Meyer was the last mistress of JFK and she was killed the day the Warren Commission report came out. I mean, Cord Meyer is an interesting character in himself, but keep going. Yeah. Yeah. He said that Clinton was recruited as a CIA asset, uh, in the when, when Clinton was a student at Oxford 
And Clinton was not a serious student. You know, he was, he actually never got his degree from Oxford because uh, he sexually assaulted a, another young woman there. And wow, really? School, and the State Department actually carried out an investigation and they said that Clinton was not a serious student. He was there to party on sex and drugs. But, you know, he was, I mean, a very charismatic guy and he was good at politics, you know, making friends and, and they were, you know, he was very close with Strobe Talbot, who was, and Strobe Talbot's a key figure in the Russiagate affair, who was later deputy undersecretary of state when Clinton was the president. He was, they were roommates at Oxford, and, and Strobe Talbot's family had a background in the CIA, and Talbot uh, was involved in translating the key to Khrushchev's memoirs. Uh, you know, and, and, and Khrushchev was a st anti-Stalin, you know, so he was a value to the CIA to publicize, you know, how bad the Stalin regime was. So that's how Clinton, I think he was involved, uh, got involved with the CIA and were recruited at that time forward. And, you know, his presidency, he basically advanced the interests of the deep state and, and the U S military at the end of the cold war. So that's what I discussed in this forthcoming book. Uh, with Clarity Press, so hope, hopefully we could have a show devoted to that. Yes, when will you be ready for that? Do I have to wait for the book to be published? Yeah, well, the book's supposed to be published, uh, I think, in October. I, I submitted the proofs. I think they're doing the copy editing and indexing now, so I think it's pretty close. I'm going to need a signed copy of that, Jeremy. Absolutely, please. yeah. <laughs> well, we well, I would rather do that when the book is available. So if we get people to be excited about it, I want them to be able to support you because I like I like paying for value. And I, I know people say value for value if you're getting value pay, but I like if you if you have a book and it adds value and look at all the wonderful work you do. I love to encourage people to buy the book. They have the book, they get that value and you get support for future work. So let's, um, well, let's talk again in August about some of your other articles. And I cannot wait to circle back up on the Clinton stuff. That sounds juicy. And by then I'll be moved into my new house. I'll have all my books at my fingertips and I probably have 12 books on Clinton. So <laughs> I'll have some questions for you. Um, but yeah, that's super cool. Thank you so much for your time. And I just uh, love picking your brain. I mean, you just do so much work. And um, I love covertactionmagazine.com. And I really like that you stick to your guns and are faithful to truth. And um, despite the fact that we have different ideology, I think we do always find common ground. So, yeah. So, and people can find you on covertactionmagazine.com and support you there too. Correct. Yeah. You can go to our website, www.covertactionmagazine.com. And I have my own website. Uh, at www.jeremykuzmarov.com and you can find uh, a lot of my writings uh, and uh, different books. Yeah, soon the Clinton book will be promoted there as well. Okay, and if you want, I don't know if you put like your media appearances, but I will put my show notes on the show notes for the show on monicasdeepdives.com and I can also forward you that stuff if you want to keep it on your website. Um, so we can talk about that after. Don't hang up, Jeremy. Thank you all very much for listening to the show. This has been a live dive on Deep Dives with Monica Perez.